All right, today's scripture reading is from Matthew 12, and that's verses 14 through 21. We have the Bibles in front of you underneath the chairs too, and if you're following along, it's on page 969. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from him. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldered wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Sometimes, this doesn't happen very often, but can you think of a situation where it just seems like there was only one person who was fit for a certain job or a certain position? Like maybe history would have been altered on the, on the small level, level or the big level if it wasn't for that one person. Most of us are eminently replaceable, but there are times, like I, this idea made me think of George Washington, the idea that that he was there to lead the army during the American Revolution and then become our first president and refused to try and make himself king when he had control of the army and to voluntarily leave after two terms in office when there was no rule that said he had to. Just, it just seems like a divine appointment. Like if, 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 if we had to have anyone else, history would have been different. Or here's another one on a smaller level. Charles Steinmetz was an electrical engineer in the early days that electrical engineering was a field. Uh, he was, you ever hear the nickname the Wizard of Schenectady? Hear that? That's this guy. He's the wizard of Schenectady. And Steinmetz, he worked at General Electric when that was a baby company. He was something of a star for GE, made GE piles of money because he developed AC power, alternating current, into a usable system. Okay, so he was a big deal. And years later, after he had retired, GE had some kind of system failure in some plant or something, and they, they were stumped. And then the engineers could figure it out. They called Charles Steinmetz and asked him to come as a consultant and see if they could fix this. And so he took less than a day, it was like a morning, and he went and he inspected this system, found the problem. He took a piece of chalk and put an X on the defective part and told him, you know, find the part with the, with the chalk X on it, replace that, you'll be good to go. And it worked. And he sent GE a bill for $10,000, which in the early 20th century was a huge pile of money. And they wanted to protest this. And so they asked him for an itemized bill. Like, what could you have done that cost $10,000? And here was his itemized bill he sent back to GE. $1 for making an X with a piece of chalk. $9,999 for being the only man who knew where to place the X with the chalk. That was his bill. Sometimes there's only one person fit for a job, and that was never truer 
than with Jesus um, being the Messiah. Since the very first sin, God had been promising a Savior. And he promised a Messiah who would be a king. And he promised a servant who would suffer and whose suffering would heal the nations. And Jesus of Nazareth was the only person who ever lived who fit all of the job descriptions of that person, that singular person who was Savior, suffering servant, Messiah King, Son of God. And in this morning's passage that Josh read for us, most of it is a quote from the Old Testament where we're going to, and we're going to see how special Jesus was, that he's the only person who could have fit some of these, some of this job description that we see today. But we're all gonna, also going to see the answer to, to why Jesus behaved in a certain way that confused a lot of people. And I'll show you what I mean and what really is the introduction to the passage. Um, The first three verses that Josh read for us today, verses 14, 15, and 16 of Matthew chapter 12, is really the introduction to the main point. It reads this way. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against Jesus, trying to figure out how they could assassinate him. They wanted to kill him. And look how Jesus responds. When Jesus learned of this, he went away. And great crowds followed him, and he kept healing them all, but then he told them, he sternly warned them not to tell anybody, you know, what I did for you. Let's just keep this between us. Now, I want you to imagine for just a minute that you are the Messiah. Okay? The rest of us are going to take some time thanking God that you are not. But you imagine that you're the Messiah. You have all that power that Jesus had. You're the, the son or daughter of God. And I want you to imagine that you just learned that you left heaven, came to earth to save people, and some of the people you came to save, your own people, have decided they want to work out a plot to kill you in a way where they don't get seen as guilty. How would you respond if you were in Jesus' position? Would you want to call down the fire from heaven on these clowns, right? Or turn them into frogs or something? Like something really, like make them Iowa Hawkeyes fans or something really terrible, right? Make them set through the, make them set through the Twilight movies or just something really terrible that nobody should ever have to do, right? Jesus walks away. And then look what else he does not do. He continues to heal like he's been healing. And here's what I would do. After I healed somebody, I would give him my little Messiah business card. And I would say, now listen, when the Pharisees, when you start hearing of a plot against me, you remember who did this for you. And you tell your friends that I'm, that I'm the one who can heal. And so when they start plotting against me, Right? Wouldn't you want to turn public opinion against them at least if you didn't turn them into frogs or call the fire down from heaven? And see, this is what confuses people about Jesus. While Jesus was alive, it confused his disciples. One place they asked, Lord, shall we call down the fire from heaven on them? That's why I use that as an example. 
They thought, you're the, you're the Messiah. You're the judge. You're the king. Don't let him get away with this. And it's, why did Jesus act like this? I think Matthew is anticipating questions like that. And that's why he gives us at this point, he decides to put his longest Old Testament quotation that he uses right here. And it's part of an ancient job description for Messiah. The rest of what we read outside of verse 17, where where in verse 17, Matthew says, this stuff that's on the screen here, he slinked away and he wouldn't turn them into frogs. That happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And the rest of what we read was originally, um, it's found in the book of Isaiah. So it was, it's the words of God though. And it was recorded by the prophet Isaiah. And so the rest of what we read today is over 700 years old by the time Matthew writes it for us. And it's a job description of Messiah. Why did Jesus act like this? Because that's who Messiah had to be. And so what we're going to learn in the rest of the passage today is we're going to learn some stuff about not just that Jesus was the only one who could fit that position, but why he had to be that way. We're going to learn five things about Jesus that were predicted over 700 years before he lived through this Old Testament uh, passage that Matthew quotes from Isaiah. And the first thing we learn is something he's told us already. Verse 18 reads this way, Behold, or looky here, or check this out, pay attention. My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved or beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like you've heard some of that somewhere before? Matthew is telling us, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the Messiah, and he's been seen as such already. He's already told us this. The reason I put that picture on the screen for this is Matthew quoted part of this verse when Jesus, telling us the story of Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin John the Baptist, he comes up out of the water, the sky is ripped open, the Spirit of God descends like a dove, and the voice of the Father booms out of heaven. This is my beloved Son. There's one word change which comes from a psalm, not this, but the rest of it comes from this verse. My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father identified Jesus as the Messiah. He is the one. And Matthew's encouraging us. If we're confused about why Jesus would behave in some of these ways that we find funny and we would never behave if we were the king and the judge and had all that power, he's encouraging us to remember, God said he's the one. So we need to reorient our idea about what Messiah should be by looking at Jesus instead of being offended that Jesus didn't act like we thought Messiah should act. That was especially important for Matthew's original audience, which was predominantly Jewish. He's the one. And by the way, speaking of things that job descriptions only Jesus could fulfill, Jesus is the only person who ever lived that God the Father could say this about. He could look down at Jesus and say, this one right here, my soul is well pleased in this one. My, my soul takes great delight in this one. 
God, God can't say that about any of the rest of us. God cannot look down and say, this is Troy in whom I'm completely pleased. I'm, my soul delights in Matt, in Joni, right? Just, just in who they are. I hesitate to put Joni in there because she's close, right? But me and Troy, not so much. Um, so with, with Jesus, God can he, he's perfect. With Jesus, God can look down and say, just in who he is, the totality of his existence and his behavior and his actions and what he, all the stuff, good stuff he did do and the bad stuff he didn't do, he never missed a beat. My soul is just completely pleased. That's Jesus. Now, praise God, the gospel says when we believe in him, his record of rights and wrongs gets put on top of ours so that in Jesus, God can look at us and then say, because of what Jesus did for you, now my soul is well pleased in, in Troy and Joni and Matt, but not because of how we live, because of how he lived and died. But that's the first thing Matthew wants us to know is that Jesus is the one. Don't let his meek behavior toward his enemies fool you. He's the one. The next thing we learn, hopefully we learn, there we go. Next thing we learn comes in the second part of verse 18, where we learn that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit to bring justice. Matthew or Isaiah, there was the words of God say this, I will put my spirit on him, God says, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He'll be led by the Holy Spirit to declare justice. All right, first a question. Maybe some of you have wondered about this. Why did Jesus need the Holy Spirit? You ever think about that? Why did the second person of the Trinity need the third person of the Trinity? We, we read it throughout the Gospels. Jesus was compelled by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. The Spirit of God is upon me. He was filled with the Spirit. We read it several times. But why did Jesus need the Holy Spirit. Here's my best shot at, a, at an answer to this. <laughs> this is a sermon within a sermon here. I want to teach you a new word today. It'll be a new word for most of us. And sometimes I want to teach you theological terms so that you can sound smart to your Christian friends. That's what I'm here for. The, and, and the word for today is kenosis. Who remembers Mr. Rogers' neighborhood? You remember Mr. Rogers? Right? Uh, we're going to go full Mr. Rogers today. The word for today is kenosis. Can you say that? Can you say kenosis? I knew you could. I knew you could, boys and girls. I'm supposed to change my shoes, I think, before I say that, right? Anybody that's watched that show said, my clicker's not a clicking back there. Thank you. Um, the kenosis is, it comes from this passage in Philippians. It's a theological term used to describe Jesus' condescension, like lowering himself, his emptying of himself. That's what kenosis means, a verb that means to pour out or to empty. Um, And it comes from this. Uh, Philippians 2, about Jesus, Paul says this, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or held on to. 
But, verse 7, he emptied himself. There's the, the Greek verb kanao, a form of it anyway. Kenosis comes from right there. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, um, by take, uh, and by sh- sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay. Here's why Jesus needed the Holy Spirit and what that has to do with this. Jesus, there was never a point in all eternity past or in all eternity future where Jesus wasn't God or won't be God. He's the creator God. First part of the Gospel of John tells us there was nothing that's ever been made that he didn't make. But because only the Son of God, only God himself could fit all the job descriptions for Messiah, Savior, suffering servant, the Son of God emptied himself temporarily set aside some of his attributes so that when Jesus came to earth he experienced stuff that Jesus had never experienced in all of eternity past he got hungry he got tired he felt pain he was frustrated right he emptied himself and one thing he did is temporarily he became so human He like temporarily gave up some of his independent authority to live the full human existence. And what I mean by that is, if he was going to be fully human, he was going to be led by the Holy Spirit, just like we're supposed to be led by the Holy Spirit. He didn't stop being God. He didn't stop having authority. He wasn't weak, but he chose to be completely human and embrace humanity so much that he would be led by the Spirit only just like we're supposed to be, only he did it perfectly. And so he was led by the Holy Spirit. I got nothing. Help me out there. Sorry, just leave it right there and I'll try the other button. Thank you. So he's led by the Holy Spirit. To bring justice, to declare justice to the Gentiles or to the nations. I am convinced, this is my bit on justice, I am convinced that a desire for justice is innate in us. We all have a desire to see justice served. When, when things are unfair, when, uh, when an innocent person is attacked, or convicted, or a guilty person gets off scot-free, what happened? You know about that. What happens inside of you? you? You feel a desire for things to be made right. Isn't that true? That's innate in us because we are made in the image of God, and He is just. And when you have a desire for justice to be served, how do you want justice to be served? See if this sounds like you. Do you not want it to be swift, harsh, and public? Isn't that true? You want it to be swift, harsh, and public. This is why every third movie that comes out is a superhero movie, and they're all the same. The story arc is all the same. This is why characters that pursue justice will always like sell and be popular whether it's old like the Lone Ranger 
Why was the Lone Ranger popular? Because he rounded up the bad guys. He brought them to justice inside half an hour. And everybody knew the bad guys were bad and the innocent people were were, uh, vindicated. That's a pleasing story. And it doesn't matter if it's them or, or Superman or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Perry Mason or Law and Order. We like that. It's built into us. And God promised millennia ago that the Messiah would be led by the Spirit to declare justice. And this is the confusing part. Because Israel was waiting for a Messiah to be about justice. Stop letting the bad guys get away with being bad. Right? And here's these Pharisees plotting the death of Jesus. And what does he do? He walks away and he tells people to be quiet about who he is. And we want to go, where is the justice? Hang on to that. His brand of justice is peculiar. It's different. Because declaring justice was not Messiah's only job description. This is also still from the same passage in Isaiah. We learn that Jesus was quietly innocent because that was part of his job description. For anyone, this is, this is why Matthew, I believe, puts this passage in where he puts it in. Why would, the, why would he let the Pharisees get away with what they got away with? Here's why. God said centuries before Jesus that the Messiah will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. The New Living Translation translates it this way. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. So when he learns that the Pharisees, who are self-righteous and they think he's a de- he has a demon and... They hate his guts and they're going to try to assassinate him. Why does Jesus let them get away with that? Because this is who God promised Messiah would be. He's not going to run the streets trying to turn public opinion toward his side. He was going to be quietly innocent, depending on the truth to come out eventually. Some weeks ago, we studied, we talked about the judgment. There's nothing secret that will not someday be revealed. The bad guys will not get away with it in the end. Jesus knows that. And he's so confident in that, he can be quietly innocent. Jesus never concerned himself with damage control. You know why? He never caused any damage. I love the, the, the masthead of the newspaper in Aspen, Colorado, which I have no idea if it's a decent paper or not. But I love what the masthead says. They say, if you don't want it printed... Don't let it happen. (laughs) There's words to live by right there. That's Jesus. Hey, you guys can carry on with what you... I don't have to worry about damage control. I'll be quietly innocent. He also... He didn't have to concern himself with what people were saying about him and how this was going to be spun in the news. He just... I'm going to be quietly innocent and eventually it will come out in the wash. He didn't didn't publish 20 tweets a day in all caps about how the Pharisees were running the worstest witch hunt in the history of injustice and, right? Quietly innocent. And it will come out in the wash. 
So why did Jesus behave that way? Because 700 some years before he was born, that's who he promised he would be. And then my favorite verse. We learn this about Jesus. That Jesus is gently restorative. I just love, I love this verse so much. God said through Isaiah 700 years before Matthew wrote, the Messiah, this about Messiah, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Those are metaphors. Um, What was he saying? Reeds are like, the best example I can think of around here is cattails. Cattails grow on reeds. They're a long, round stem that when it gets dry, it's very rigid, right? Bamboo, if you don't know what cattails look like. Bamboo is like the biggest, strongest reed. Uh, Bamboo certainly wasn't in Isaiah's brain when he wrote that. They didn't have bamboo. But reeds were used. They're very useful. They were used all over the ancient world for measuring rods, musical instruments, uh, parts of boats because they're buoyant, like lots of stuff. Pins, smaller reeds, or pins were used for those. Um, but with a reed, what happens with a reed if it gets crushed, dented, bruised at one point? What's it going to do? It's going to bend there. How do you fix it? Like it's just shot, right? It's never going to hold its shape again. So with a bruised reed that's bent, what would any normal, reasonable person do with that? Throw it out. Throw it out, or you can break it in half where it's bruised, cut out the bad parts, and you can try to use two small reeds. But the usefulness of the full reed is is done, so you discard it. A, A smoldering wick is the same example different story. This is not a wick through a candle like I have on the screen here. This would have been a wick in the 700s BC in an oil lamp made of flax. And when a lamp in your house, when that wick started smoldering, stuff was burning besides the oil. It smoked like crazy. The light wasn't what it should have been. So any reasonable person, again, what do they do? They snuff the lamp out and either discard the wick or at least cut the bad part off. Okay, God said, when Messiah shows up, these are metaphors for people. (laughs) He won't discard broken people. He, He won't snuff out people when their flame for him begins to die. Listen, that's Jesus. And that's how not like a normal political leader Jesus is. Because humans, guess who we want to keep around us? People who benefit us. And when we've served their usefulness, get rid of them. Jesus is so not like that. He's gently restorative. He doesn't waste our pain. The beginning of 2 Corinthians, Paul said that we go through pain and hurt. We get bruised. We get crushed. So that God, if we walk with Him through that, He comforts us through our pain. Why? So that we know how to comfort someone else when they go through theirs. 
That's, that's a bruised reed. Not, he doesn't break us and throw us away. He uses our, our pain to his glory. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about how when I am weak, then I am strong because his power makes perfect through, is made perfect through my weakness. Where I'm bent, where I'm crushed, he will show himself strong where I'm weak. Jesus doesn't discard damaged people. That's what the Messiah, that's what the, the disciples wanted Jesus to do with those Pharisees. Smoke them. Jesus, no, no, no. Not on this trip. I'm a restorer. Everyone gets the chance. How about this? You ever felt like your flame isn't burning quite as bright as it used to? Your, your, whether your personal relationship with the Lord, you feel like I don't have as bright a fire as I used to have? Or like your lamp is under a bushel? I don't live out there in the world for Jesus like I know He wants me to live. Guess what the Messiah promised 700 years before wouldn't do? He's not in the business of snuffing you out because you haven't been pulling your weight around here. He wants to just fan that flame back to its full brightness because he's a restorer first. As Psalm 147 says, he heals the brokenhearted and he bandages their wounds. And then in the last verse and a half, we read that Jesus' justice is the hope of the world. It reads this way. Jesus will behave in all the ways Isaiah and Matthew tells us God said he would behave. Um, he'll be the, the, the special servant in whom the, the, the soul of the Father delights. He'll be peaceful. He'll be gentle. He'll be restorative. He'll be non-argumentative until he brings justice through to victory. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. There's so much awesome in this verse. All right, so he's going to behave that way until he's brought justice through to victory. If we weren't in church and you weren't listening to a sermon and I said, I want to tell you a story about someone who brought justice through to victory, what kind of story would pop into your head? It would be the Justice League, Captain America, Perry Mason, right? That's what bringing justice to victory looks like. The bad guys get punished. How do we want it to be done? We want it to be swift inside half an hour if it's on TV, inside 90 minutes if I'm in the theater. Swift, harsh, and public. Again, that's what's confusing about Jesus. Because his justice wasn't swift, harsh, and public. Or was it? Jesus' justice was different. Jesus' first trip to earth, he did not come to round up the bad guys and punish the bad guys and vindicate the innocent people. You know why? There weren't any innocent people. Proverbs 17, 15 says this. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination. He who knows someone is guilty and justifies them, declares them not guilty, lets them off scot-free. That person's an abomination. So what does that mean about you and me? Does God know you're guilty? 
Yes. If he justifies you, he's an abomination. He said so right here. If he declares you not guilty, why can't God just forgive? Just forgive. You know why? Because the one who justifies the wicked is an abomination. If God, God has to punish sin. You know why? You think you have a sense of injustice in your heart? When you see injustice? Think about God who's perfect and righteous and built this whole place. When he sees injustice, it's a horrendous stench in his nostrils. He has to punish sin because he's just and he's not going to let the guilty get away with it. So he sends his son to earth and he says, all right, we're going to go down there and we're going to judge sin and we're going to punish it and we're going to set the record straight. But where does the punishment go? That's why Jesus went to the cross. It was justice and it was swift and it was horrible and it was public. You know why? Because that's what justice is. And what we want, what we want is what the disciples wanted. Why don't you go get the real bad guys? Right? Like if somebody's getting a speeding ticket and they think, why are you pulling me over? There's real bad guys out there for you. to be. No, you were speeding. Right? Here's what we want. God, I want you to go get the real bad guys. I want you to stamp out the bad people, the terrorists and the murderers and the child molesters and the Democrats. I mean the bad people. Right? But here's what we're necessarily saying. I'm not a bad people. Like I'm not that bad. And here's the truth. If Jesus comes and he decides to call fire down from heaven on the Pharisees, he can't stop with the Pharisees. He has to use his standards of acceptability and not ours. That's why God told us 700 years ahead of time, when he comes and shows up, don't worry, he's coming for justice. He's going to do it. There's a day coming where nothing will be hidden that has been hidden. Hidden. Nobody's going to get away with anything. But first, he says, he's going to be a restorer. He's going to... He's going to heal the broken reed. He's going to fan the smoldering wick back into full light. When we read this story, or stories like this, and think, Jesus, why don't you go get the bad guys? It's like we don't know what we're saying. We overinflate our own righteousness, and we deflate God's holiness and his justice. Praise God, Jesus didn't come to vanquish sinners and, and destroy the bad guys. Praise God. Because we'd be on that list. He came to absorb the punishment, the full wrath of God for justice. And that's why we are saved. You know what you're saved? For? If you're saved, you know what you're saved from? You know ultimately what you are saved from? You are saved from God. Because when he comes back, it's going to be justice time, boys and girls. And it's going to be swift, and it's going to be public, and it's going to be terrible. And people are going to be cast into hell in the lake of fire for all eternity.
Because God is just. And if you are saved, we're saved from Him. We're saved from His justice. So that every person who ever lives, their justice, the full force of God's judgment, will either have been poured out on Jesus at the cross, or you or I can stand before a holy and righteous God and try to convince Him we really weren't all that bad. That's the only reason Isaiah and Matthew can say what they say at the end here. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Listen, if Jesus doesn't suffer the justice we earned and deserve, we don't have any hope in Jesus. If Jesus didn't die under the full cup of God's wrath, if he didn't pour it all out so that he hated his son on that cross and turned away and couldn't stomach it, the side of him. If Jesus didn't endure that, we have no hope. We're, we're just waiting on him to pour that out on us. But he did. The, the, the public, the swift, ferocious public wrath of God was poured out on the God-man that those who believe in him might not perish under the weight of God's wrath. So what do we learn from this passage? We learn who the Jesus was, who he had to be to fit all the job descriptions laid out in the Old Testament. Then we learn things like this. Have you been wronged? Have you suffered injustice? Do you yearn for God to step in and right the wrongs? And that's a perfectly acceptable thing to desire because we were, we were born with that desire. First, make no mistake, He will. He will right every wrong. Justice will be served. Swift, terrible, and public. But as you cry out to God for justice, make sure you spend some time thanking Him that He was very patient in His justice. That He was slow to anger. That He was abounding in loving kindness. And... And don't get too frustrated with the the wrongness of the world. God is not slow in his justice. He's patient. And his slowness, those bad guys getting away with being bad guys for so long, it's not injustice. It's grace. It's a chance that everybody gets. From this passage, I'm reminded this. When you see damaged people, don't be quick to discard. Whether their damage is self-inflicted damage or world-inflicted damage. If we're going to be like Jesus to a world, Jesus doesn't discard the damaged. He's a restorer. He really is the only hope um, of the nations. You know, I can't imagine how offensive this was to the Jews who first read it. Matthew's reminding the Jews, he came to be a hope for those people that you want God to destroy. (laughs) Hope for the bad guys. Praise God, I'm a bad guy, but I have hope because of what Jesus endured on my behalf. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the slow 
patient, quiet justice of Jesus. Thank you that the swift, terrible public justice of Jesus was what was poured out upon him. God, thank you for the sense that that helps us make out of this world where we see evil succeeding. We see the bad guys prospering. And we want to know where is the justice? The justice was served on a cross, on a hill 2,000 years ago. And it is our hope. And God, if you were, are patient with the people we think are bad guys, it's only because you decided to be patient with us too. God, make us a church, make us individuals who take that hope to others and who restore those who are broken, who are dented, who are crushed. Thank you for not casting us off, but suffering under our punishment. We love you, Lord. You are our hope, and we pray this in your name. Amen.